This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Hi, it's Jen White. Before we start the show, I want to take a moment to thank you, our 1A listeners, and anyone listening who donates to public media. After all, public media means that you, the public, support it. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. And for anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get actively involved in creating a more informed public. That's our whole mission at NPR. That's why we're here. With 1A, you're part of the conversation. Your donation helps 1A bring you not only conversations that matter, but also stories, guests, and surprises that lift you up. To help this work keep going, please make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite station or stations in the NPR network. What really matters is that you're part of the community that makes this work possible. Listener support is a powerful resource. It takes all of us doing what we can, when we can, to keep this free public service going. So please, give today at donate.npr.org slash 1A. Thanks. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo from Axios, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. A mix of stories this week from those who showed up hoping to be heard. In the depths of my addiction, I was extremely irresponsible with my finances. But to suggest that is grounds for an impeachment inquiry is beyond the absurd. Those with a point to prove. The White House is impeding that investigation now. They're not allowing witnesses to come forward and thousands of pages of documents. So we have no choice. We have to take the next step. And the price paid for choosing the wrong words. I've said many times leaders have a responsibility to speak and act with moral clarity. And Liz McGill failed to meet that simple test. Let's introduce our panel. Idris Kaloun is back. Idris is the Washington bureau chief for The Economist. This week, he joins us from London. Hi, Idris. Hi. Good to be with you. Eva McKen covers national politics at CNN. Thanks for coming in studio. Thanks for having me. And also with us in studio, Cheryl Gay Stolberg is Washington correspondent at The New York Times. It's great to be back. Let's start with a few stories that are as much legal as they are political. Special counsel Jack Smith has two cases against former President Donald Trump. This week, he made a bold move that, if successful, would undercut one of Trump's chief defenses. This week, Smith asked the Supreme Court to rule on whether the former president can claim immunity from criminal charges stemming from his alleged interference in the 2020 election. Eva, why is this a big deal? Well, the question is whether the Constitution confers absolute immunity on a former president against a federal prosecution for crimes committed while he was in office. That is the crux of this debate, of this matter. Trump says yes. Jack Smith says no. And he does not want uh, Trump to prolong this effort. He wants a quick ruling on whether Trump can be prosecuted. That's why he's brought this to the high court, basically calling his bluff. He aims to undercut 
Trump's chief defenses here, which is that uh, he was he should be immune from prosecution on this matter because uh, he was in office. He's trying to chip away at this executive immunity defense. Cheryl, the former president has called special counsel Jack Smith, quote, deranged and, quote, a thug. In a court filing, his attorneys are comparing Jack Smith to the Grinch. On what grounds? Well, the attorneys are basically saying that Jack Smith is trying to make everybody work too hard. Um, Their filing said that um, the proposed schedule that the special prosecutor is rolling out for the case would require everybody to work around the holiday season. It would disrupt travel and family plans, etc. And uh, they wrote, it's as if the special counsel growled with his Grinch fingers nervously drumming, I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming, but how? But I think that there's actually something else really interesting in that filing, and that is that they use this sort of time-honored political tactic of turning an argument on itself. And they said that the special prosecutor was rushing to have these cases heard, and by doing so, he was trying to get it all done, you know, with – you know, within the election time frame, and that this amounted to election interference on the part of the special counsel trying to subvert the will of millions of voters who support Donald Trump and who would want to vote for him. And I thought that was just really interesting that Trump's lawyers are basically accusing the special counsel of doing what the special counsel is, has accused Donald Trump of doing, interfering with an election. Idris, what effect does this move have on the case in D.C. that's due to start in early March? Well, it could have a major effect. I mean, as Cheryl was just saying, the government was hoping to start the trial on March 4th. That would be one day before Super Tuesday where tons of states are going to vote, and at which point Donald Trump might be very close to clinching the party's 2024 nomination. So the split-screen spectacle would have been pretty extraordinary. But if the Supreme Court were to take the case and agree with Trump's claim that uh, while in office he had absolute immunity from any crimes, uh, even those that are prosecuted after he leaves office, um, I think that would that would eliminate the, the case entirely. That, w- that would make it hard for that to stand. Um, now there would be a separate question of whether or not the state prosecution that's underway in Georgia, uh, whether that precedent of immunity applied to those uh, uh, proceedings as well. But, um, you know, this this is going to be a pivotal case for the court to take on. And although uh, the Supreme Court is is conservative, many of the judges were appointed by Donald Trump himself, um, they have not been uh, very uh, uh, pleasing to uh, Trump's, you know, kind of more democracy-bending uh, requests. For example, they threw out the case that a bunch of Republican elected officials put forward to toss out electoral votes for the states that went for Joe Biden in 2020. Um, so I think that there there might be a skeptical hearing. But of course, uh, that proceeding is going to be watched very closely. The Supreme Court has taken this up on an expedited uh, procedure. So they, they grasp the importance of this uh, question as well. The federal court here in D.C. has been busy with another big case. On trial is former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And the court's job is to determine how much he owes in damages to two poll workers he defamed on national television with false and lurid claims of election fraud. On Monday, Giuliani promised reporters this. When I testify, you'll get the whole story and it will be definitively clear that what I said was true 
and that whatever happened to them, which is, it's unfortunate if other people overreacted, but everything I said about them is true. That wasn't true. By the end of the week, Trump's former attorney changed his mind and did not testify. Eva, to be clear, a previous court had already found Giuliani guilty of defamation. What did we hear this week from his lawyers and also those representing these two poll workers? Well, the most wild aspect of this whole thing to me is what you just aired, that he is still repeating this claim that Freeman and Moss changed votes, even though at this point it's been well established uh, that this is a lie. His lawyers, contrary to the comments that he made outside of court, said that, you know, this is the product of bitterness. They even suggested, you know, he's almost 80 years old. You have to forgive him. He's an old man. That's why he's still making these cockamamie claims. But Giuliani could be uh, significantly financially liable. I mean, uh, Freeman and Moss's lawyers are asking the women to be awarded $24 million apiece. And that's because at the these lies really caused havoc in their lives. They were uh, threatened. They got uh, uh, horrible voice messages left for them. You know, they feared for their lives, all because Giuliani was on this persistent campaign uh, to suggest that they did something nefarious in the election against Trump, which they did not. Idris, in closing arguments yesterday, attorneys asked the jurors to send a message. Given what we were just talking about with former President Trump, uh, they were the attorneys were asking jurors to send a message to people in power about what they say. Is this outcome also likely to send a message to the former president? You know, I don't. I don't think that uh, he's going to be changing in his ways. He's he's demonstrated already. We see his strategy is to demonize the courts, to argue against the courts, to say that this is a political prosecution. Um, you know, Giuliani is is low on money. He's been asking the president for help with that, and there's been some attempt at fundraising and whatnot. But I don't think that, uh, you know, the ethos of Trump uh, is, is going to be changing very much um, throughout the campaign. And even this repudiation, even the repudiations that we've seen um, over over the course of the last few months, you know, some of his key uh, attorneys like Jenna Ellis and others in, in Georgia who have had to issue apologies uh, as part of plea deals, um, uh, that has not uh, caused the president to change his tone. And I don't imagine that uh, even a, a conviction of Giuliani, even a resounding uh, judgment against him would be would be enough to change his view. So, you know, I think that in addition to talking about Rudy Giuliani with respect to this case, it's really important for us to think about the women who were injured and about the cost of misinformation in our society. You know, here we have two black women, a mom and a daughter, who were falsely accused of um, stealing ballots or, you know, of fraud and who really suffered serious consequences, racist, hateful emails. One of the women, um, Shane Moss, testified this week that, you know, she fears going out of her house. She's in therapy. They had to move. She lost, exactly. She lost her job. And they played some of these horrible, horrible messages that, you know, threaten lynchings and death. And it's, um, I just think it's really important that we don't lose sight of who's hurt by this kind of false talk. Eva, can you remind us um, what they're being asked to deliberate over? Well, they are being asked to um, digest all this testimony they got this week. And, you know, the 
Giuliani's guilt or innocence is not really being litigated. It's really the amount of damages at this point. But something that even their lawyers conceded is that they might not actually get this money because Giuliani is broke. Uh, but that is what the, the jury is deciding, how much money uh, they should be awarded. We're going to take a quick pause here and head to a break. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. An update on a story we've been following in Texas. Last week, a district judge there ruled that a Texas woman, Kay Cox, should be allowed to have an abortion despite the state's near-total bans. Her fetus was diagnosed with a chromosomal abnormality that meant it would very likely die in utero or shortly after birth. But later that same day, the Texas Supreme Court put that decision on hold. This week, they officially overturned that ruling, deciding that the abortion should not be allowed. That final decision came after Cox said she would leave the state for the procedure. Cheryl, this legal battle was over one person's abortion, but what are the wider implications here of the Texas Supreme Court's decision? So you're right. It's over one person's abortion. And of course, it's the Texas Supreme Court, so it applies to Texas. But if you look at what's happening around the country, many, many states um, have adopted these very strict abortion laws. Texas's law had this very narrow exception. It provided for abortion only to save the life of the mother or to prevent, quote, substantial impairment of a major bodily function. Kate Cox argued that her future fertility was at risk and ultimately the Supreme Court of Texas decided that's not enough. If you look at other state laws, they are similarly restrictive. And my own reporting has showed that doctors in red states, including maternal fetal specialists, are leaving red states because they are afraid that they will be prosecuted for the practice of medicine. And I think this is the real impact of the Texas Supreme Court decision. It's a chilling effect. It's a frightening um, omen for doctors and for patients about what can happen when courts get involved in a person's medical care. And um, I think that it wouldn't surprise me if we see other cases cropping up in other states like Idaho or South Carolina or Florida that have these restrictive bans. 
Well, we're obviously hearing Republican candidates for president weighing in. Here's former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley during a CNN interview this week. When you do something in a state, it's never perfect right off the bat. You learn how to tweak it. And I think all of these states need to tweak it in a way that our number one goal is how do you save as many babies as possible and support as many moms as possible? Idris, how are we seeing this issue of abortion playing out in the presidential election so far? Well, what we've seen is uh, Nikki Haley is perhaps the most moderate of the Republicans on the stage uh, that we've seen in the debate. She's established a pretty clear contrast between herself um, and others. And then there are those like Ron DeSantis, uh, who has signed into law a six-week ban uh, in Florida that's very contentious. And Donald Trump is interesting. He is, although the man who appointed the three conservative justices who are the reason that Roe versus Wade is no longer the law of the land, he has not been campaigning uh, as aggressively on that. Um, and in fact, he has said um, that uh, Republicans need to get better messaging on abortion. He sort of understands uh, implicitly that uh, abortion is, is bad politics for uh, Republicans. And so he's uh, avoided the issue more than certainly someone like Mike Pence would. Um, but abortion, I think Republicans have quickly realized, is a vote loser for them. Uh, that is why in some states where Democrats are fighting to put this on the ballot boxes, referendum in 2024, whether it's Nevada or Florida, uh, Republicans are, are fighting that and trying to, to remove that because they know that's a good way to turn out votes for Democrats. I think it's important to know, even though Haley is making a great effort to strike this more warm tone and say that we should be compassionate when we talk about abortion, on a policy matter, she's no different than any than Governor DeSantis, for instance. So in Iowa, she's asked if she would sign a, a six-week abortion ban into law. She basically tries to contort her way out of it by arguing, well, that would never happen. We would never have a House in a Senate that would send a president a six-week ban. But that belies the fact that she would still sign it into law. So I think that that's uh, that is very, very important uh, to point out, that we are seeing Republicans uh, sort of kind of want to have it both ways on this issue. Um, they don't like the politics of it because it's really opening people's eyes who may have thought that women are primarily using abortion as a form of uh, birth control and not seeing that this issue is incredibly nuanced, it's incredibly complicated, and that many women, even if they have a fetus with a fetal condition that they might not qualify f to terminate their pregnancy in their state. Right. And we're seeing that in Florida. I was just going to mention abortion rights activists collecting signatures in support of a ballot amendment, Idris, you were mentioning, that would limit the state's ability to restrict abortions. More than 150,000 re registered Florida Republicans have broken with their party to sign. That's according to the Florida Women's Freedom Coalition, one of several groups gathering signatures for the ballot measure. Yeah, I was smiling when Eva was talking because she really took the words right out of my mouth that these Republicans are trying to have it both ways. One thing that Nikki Haley said that really struck me was she said, oh, well, we just have to tweak the law. Well, anybody who knows anything about the practice of medicine knows that cases are very individual and there's really no way to quote unquote tweak a law that will cover every instance that comes up. And uh, we do know that Republicans are worried about this abortion law or this, uh, this abortion issue, the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling. We've seen other states, Kentucky, um, Ohio, 
Montana, California, Vermont, a few others that um, have enshrined abortion rights since the Dobbs ruling. And Florida could become another state on that list. Idris, what do you make of the high number of Republicans signing, Republican voters, we should say, signing in support of these ballot measures? Um, I think it makes sense. So, you know, Gallup polls show that only 24% of Republicans actually believe that abortion should be illegal in all cases, uh, which is the position that a lot of red states have uh, immediately converged to, whether through an outright ban or establishing six-week bans, which really severely limit the ability of of women to get abortions if they need them. Um, You know, so I think that, like uh, Cheryl was just saying, um, in a lot of red states, when abortion is put on the ballot itself, uh, you know, voters vote uh, to to establish that right. That's true in Kentucky. It's true in Kansas. Um, And I imagine that if it were to be put on the ballot in Florida, it would be true there as well. Now, the Republican attorney general there has sued and argued that the uh, use of the word viability in the proposed amendment text um, is too vague and therefore it shouldn't be on the ballot. Um, You know, that will remain to be seen. Uh, But, uh, you know, I imagine that if this were to be put on the ballot in Florida um, as a straight up or down vote, that uh, voters would overwhelmingly pass it, even though the state as a whole has been trending quite Republican. Let's end with one uh, final abortion story, this time about the legal battle on the federal level. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a dispute over the abortion and miscarriage medication Mifepristone. Cheryl, what are the details of this case? So Mifepristone is uh, better known as the abortion pill. It's really one half of a combination. And the FDA approved it in 2000. In 2016 and in 2021, the FDA moved to expand access. And those expansions of access, including the ability to have uh, Mifepristone sent by mail, are what's at issue in this case. It's a really, really important case because the Supreme Court is now going to decide whether or not it is going to undermine the FDA's authority by overruling or invalidating those FDA decisions. So it has really broader ramifications than just the abortion pill. It's a question of uh, whether or not the Supreme Court is going to step in and really substitute its judgment for that of federal regulators. And medication abortions account for more than half of abortions in the U.S. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute. Eva, so how significant is this? Will this case be next year with its decision likely coming months before the presidential election? It could be seismic. And that's why we see so many Democrats rushing to put the issue on the ballot in various states. We also know that this issue doesn't fall neatly along party lines. We see Republicans in Florida, for instance, who supported Governor DeSantis, also support a ballot initiative to um, enshrine uh, reproductive rights into law. So this is going to be a huge issue next year. It is deeply galvanizing for Democrats And actually, one of the few issues where President Biden right now on a policy issue is is polling higher than former President Donald Trump. Another battle is brewing in Congress over aid to Ukraine. On Tuesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Washington to make his case. Russia's war on Ukraine isn't just about isn't just about some old fashioned dictatorship trying to settle scores, real or imagined. It's not just Moscow trying to split Europe again. It's Putin 
Putin attacking that big shift that happened back in 1989. He's fighting Ukraine, but really, he's, he's up against all of free United Europe. That was Ukraine's President Zelensky speaking at the National Defense University here in D.C. Cheryl, it seems like support, at least from Congress, may not be forthcoming. GOP lawmakers, even those supportive of Ukraine, have tied Ukraine funding to the border. So what exactly are the prospects of some kind of deal at this point? Well, it's not looking very good. Um, GOP leaders and and Republican lawmakers have, as you said, tied tied this to, you know, funding for the border. That's actually something President Biden wanted and initiated as kind of a way to sweeten the pot to get this aid to Ukraine. Republicans have now turned that against him and are have basically blocked a bill. They're filibustering a bill that would provide $50 billion in aid to Ukraine um, as a way to squeeze the president to um, take more aggressive steps at the border. The White House has indicated that it is willing, in fact, to uh, to make some concessions, but time is running short. Congress is scheduled to be out for its holiday recess next week. Uh, some lawmakers are suggesting that maybe they will stay in to continue this debate, but right now it's up in the air. The end of the year is approaching, and Volodymyr Zelensky came to Washington this week and left empty-handed. Idris, CBS is reporting that the White House has signaled it's open to several measures related to immigration in exchange for this Ukraine aid that Cheryl was just talking about. What is What do those entail? Yeah, so the White House is willing to concede a good amount of ground. Uh, some of them are technical, but they matter a lot. One is raising the standard for credible fear. So when someone arrives at the border and claims asylum, there is an interview uh, in which officers assess whether or not that person has a has a legitimate credible fear, whether they think that they would have a significantly uh, high enough chance of qualifying for asylum. Uh, those people are then uh, released into the country, and this is a, a huge bugbear for uh, Republicans. So it would raise the standard there. Um, it would reinstate something like Title 42, which, uh, if you remember back from the COVID days, allowed for American asylum law to be paused. Um, that was under the justification of a public health emergency. Uh, the White House seems open to allowing that kind of authority, but without a kind of public health emergency, which would um, take the Biden administration back to something pretty close to what the Trump administration had in place. Now, for Republicans, this is still wouldn't be enough. Um, you know, they would want to go further. They would want to reinstate uh, migrant family detention. They would want to reinstate the Remain in Mexico uh, policy, which which Donald Trump uh, uh, premiered. And they would also want to get rid of uh, other uh, parole authorities that the White House has used. But even, even these many concessions, even though they're not enough for Republicans probably, uh, already they are splitting the Democratic coalition. So you see... Uh, um, Hispanic Democrats like uh, California Senator Alex Padilla, uh, who has been denouncing uh, some of the concessions that the White House is reportedly considering, they say that uh, the lines are not final. But um, you know, putting putting border uh, uh, you know security as one of the preconditions for Ukraine aid, I think, makes it harder to imagine that either of them get done. I just want to underscore that sweeping and drastic limits to asylum could really be politically perilous for this president if he makes that concession. Sometimes here in Washington, I think 
there is this uh, understanding that maybe maybe if he just caves on this, it'll be okay because it'll be beneficial for moderates and independents. But I think that if you actually talk to organizers in those communities, you know how much that President Biden can't afford to continue to potentially depress turnout among the base. And so uh, those uh, concessions, you know, we're talking about expedited removal, deporting migrants without court hearings. If he's willing to make those kinds of compromises, it could be huge for next year. And that is something that we uh, really should keep in mind. Cheryl, this week Congress did pass the National Defense Authorization Act to the tune of $886 billion. What kind of money for Ukraine is included in this bill, among other things? Um, This was an $886 billion defense bill. And what was allotted for Ukraine is $300 million. So that's kind of small change in Washington terms. It was to extend the Ukraine Security uh, Assistance Initiative through 2026. That's the money that allows um, our government to contract with industry to provide weapons and security assistance to Ukraine. Idris, did you want to add anything else there? Yeah, just just to say that uh, it's it's a pittance relative to the amount that Ukraine is asking for. So the Biden administration has requested sixty one billion uh, to fund the Ukrainian military and uh, government, uh, and that would only last for nine months. So if you compare the two numbers, three hundred million and sixty billion, it gives you a sense of uh, you know, huge how much gap the there. NDAA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 to say the least. We're going to take a quick pause here and head to a break, but before we do. After 24 years, Curb Your Enthusiasm is coming to an end. HBO announced that the final episode will air in February. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. We'll be back with more after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life, Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Let's move on to the House of Representatives, which voted along party lines to authorize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden on Wednesday. Eva, what are Republicans claiming the president has done? Well, they are 
continuing to make these claims without evidence that the president was involved in his son's business dealings. And the entire reason for advancing this impeachment inquiry was basically to give it more teeth. This inquiry has already been ongoing, but they aren't getting the level of cooperation that they want from the White House. And so by advancing this inquiry, they're hoping that uh, it would make this effort more uh, legitimate. But, um, you know, even GOP leadership is indicating that just because there is an inquiry doesn't mean that there necessarily is going to be an impeachment of the president. And that's because at this stage, they do not have the votes. I will say politically, though, from being out on the campaign trail, this slogan of Biden crime family that you hear Republicans echoing time and time again, it is landing with their voters. You know, uh, you'll speak to a voter in Iowa, for instance, and they'll say, well, we have to elect a Republican next year because there is so much crime in the Biden family. There's no evidence of this, but from a messaging standpoint, it's resonating with the people that they are trying to get this message across to. We did see President Biden's son Hunter show up on Capitol Hill Wednesday, offer to testify publicly rather than submit to closed-door questioning from Republicans. Idris, what else did he have to say? Um, well, you're right. He, he rejected a subpoena uh, to appear privately and testify before the Oversight Committee, which they were uh, upset about. Um, and, you know, what he said was basically, I think he literally said, what are they afraid of? I'm here. So he wants to testify in public. Um, he sees this uh, effort as a politicized, uh, you know, campaign to get at his father. I think it's hard to argue with that. Republicans have been uh, scrutinizing, um, you know, his dealings, his laptop, et cetera, for any shred of evidence that connects to the president. Um, I imagine if they had any good evidence, they would have revealed it by now. Uh, but they're hoping that this impeachment inquiry, which will give them more um, authorization, will will enable them to find something. And, you know, to them, they think it'll probably be a potent split screen in the election year as Donald Trump faces his trials, that they will make a somewhat asymmetric and false equivalence. But they'll say that, uh, look, Biden's on trial, too. The two men are equivalent and you have no uh, ability to really choose who's who's worse between them. Uh, I think that'll be a, something you'll see them say. So... Uh- I think it's important to note, though, that right now the House does not have the votes to impeach President Biden on a on a vote of the full House. And they can move forward with this inquiry. Jim Jordan, has, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, has indicated that he will call nine more witnesses. They're trying to get tax investigators to uh, explain to them why Hunter Biden wasn't indicted earlier. But at the end of the day, in any impeachment, if a president is going to be impeached and put on trial in the Senate, he has to be, the impeachment vote has to pass the full House. And right now, there are Republicans who are saying while um, they support the investigation, they don't really think that there are the the votes to impeach the president. University presidents have been in the headlines this week. Harvard President Claudine Gay will keep her job after the university's governing body issued a statement saying they stood in, quote, unanimous support of her. Critics have called for the presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT to resign over their responses on Capitol Hill last Tuesday. Here's Republican Representative Elise Stefanik questioning Harvard President Claudine Gay. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. And is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct 
that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct, and we do take action. That was New York Republican Elise Stefanik questioning Harvard President Claudine Gay on Capitol Hill on December 5th. Cheryl, in the days since this congressional hearing, University of Pennsylvania President Elizabeth McGill and chair to the university's board of trustees, Scott Bach, have resigned over McGill's responses to Elise Stefanik. Can you explain what happened here? Well, I think her responses, which were, um, I would say, kind of academic and not visceral to the question of whether or not uh, Stefanik put the question is, is calling for genocide of Jews a violation and of university policies and would you punish it? And she gave sort of a comment about free speech, et cetera. Um, it was the final straw for her. I mean, donors had at the University of Pennsylvania had already been lashing out at both um, the chair and at Elizabeth McGill for their response to the October 7th attack. And there were a lot of pressure from, you know, Jewish students for her to condemn hateful speech, et cetera. Um, and at the end of the day, I think um, the that kind of viral moment with Elise Stefanik questioning all of the university presidents was sort of too much for her to withstand. Um, the do Pens- you th- yeah, do you think there are broader implications for the future of freedom of speech in I, higher I, education? I actually do. I think that this was, in a way, almost a gotcha by Elise Stefanik, creating a situation that wasn't happening. There weren't, we don't know of anybody explicitly calling for the genocide of Jews. So she created a hypothetical. And as we saw Claudine Gay answer that question, um, universities would take action when speech crosses over into conduct. Um, And free speech, you know, as, as awful and heinous as that sentiment is, if it doesn't cross over into conduct, typically a university will not take action. Um, I think that probably university administrators are going to be watching what happened at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard and other uh, schools and, and take note. It also underscored that these universities have a limited degree of independence. I mean, look at the outsized influence of these donors. They essentially can say jump and folks have to say how high, evidently. Um, She was also under fire because she allowed for a Palestinian uh, literary conference um, on campus. They had asked her to cancel that. And so this just underscores that you know, that that uh, the donors had a lot of power. They engaged in a sustained campaign to drive her out, and they were successful. The difference with the Harvard president is that she seems to have a lot of institutional support. I think that's right. Idris, anything you wanted to add here? Yeah, I, I think free speech on campuses has not been in a good way for a long time. And I think that one of the reasons that this episode has been so explosive is that People who have felt that uh, colleges like Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania and other elite campuses have really um, not espoused a First Amendment-aligned view on on free speech have suddenly picked this moment to evangelize about uh, the Constitution or something in line with the Chicago principles. Uh, And so they see 
you know that moment as being a kind of hypocritical one uh, for for them to pick. I think that's where you see um, a lot of the anger, and I think that this could be an inflection point uh, for colleges where they decide uh, whether or not they want to, uh, you know, enhance the kind of diversity, equity, inclusion offices that they've created that have grown larger and larger, whether they kind of add categories to that or whether they wholesale revisit and examine uh, what the place of the university is with regard to politics and whether or not it should take a more studiously neutral stance. Let's move on to some economic news. In its final meeting of the year, the Federal Reserve decided to keep interest rates steady, but Federal Reserve officials indicate they expect to make three rate cuts in 2024. The committee decided at today's meeting to maintain the target range for the federal funds rate at five and a quarter to five and a half percent and to continue the process of significantly reducing our securities holdings. While we believe that our policy rate is likely at or near its peak for this tightening cycle, the economy has surprised forecasters in many ways since the pandemic and ongoing progress toward our two percent inflation objective is not assured. We are prepared to tighten policy further if appropriate. That's Fed Chair Jay Powell speaking at a press conference on Wednesday. Idris, this news comes as the Labor Department reported inflation dropped 3.1 percent as of November, still higher than normal, but an improvement. So what kind of economy are we looking at as we head into this new year? Yeah, it can be kind of hard to hear beyond the central bank speak, but that's that's Jay Powell being excited about uh, feeling that he has pulled off a soft landing, that he has that's raised holiday interest cheer rates. from the Fed chair. Exactly. He's not the Grinch at all. Um, but what he's saying there is that uh, the Fed's policy of raising rates has tamped down on inflation, like you said. Um, and unlike predictions that there would be a recession, America's economy remains strong. And so, uh, you know, the soft landing might have been achieved and the Fed might even think about doing rate cuts next year, which would suggest that, um, you know, things have, have evened out. Uh, it might be a little bit of a premature holiday cheer. Um, The European Central Bank and the Bank of England also met this week. um, And while they kept rates at the same level, they did not suggest that they might be cutting, um, even though their growth is not as high as America's. So, uh, and he he left the door open himself to uh, to possible tightening. So uh, we'll see. But it's it's certainly better news than many were forecasting uh, at the start of the year. And as we're looking at American gas prices going below three dollars a gallon in some places, Idris, how much do you think that affects consumer sentiment, especially as we head into a busy holiday travel season? Yeah, I mean, Americans are incredibly sensitive to uh, gas prices. America is actually, I think, as of a few months ago, it hit its uh, peak in terms of oil production, uh, something that the president uh, maybe would like to cow about, possibly can't. Anyway, gas prices have not risen uh, nearly as much, although voters are still, despite the good economic news, are still fairly pessimistic. And I was reading a poll today saying that more Americans expect that gas prices will increase in the next year than, than think it will decrease. So uh, there's a lot of pessimism baked in. Uh, the holiday cheer is not getting through to uh, Americans writ large. All right. So I'm going to end by asking for what's in your reporter's notebook, what you want to talk about as final stories. Uh, Eva, you're just back from Iowa? Yeah, I am interested to see how much Haley can continue to capitalize on this momentum she's seeing. Even her own supporters are a little bit skeptical of this argument that she's making to voters that she's going to be a more electable candidate in the fall and that she just needs them to bring her over the edge and to beat uh, the former president. But still, even with this momentum, she trails Trump 20, 30 points in Iowa. So I'm I'm just trying to see how much she can make of this. A really interesting, I think, point of the cycle that we've reached. Idris? 
Yeah, I've been diving into uh, the starting position of the 2024 election. You know, both President Biden and President Trump, the presumable nominee, are very well known. Uh, So looking into what Americans think about both men uh, and examining how much the third party candidates that we think we might have might affect the election in the in the year ahead. And since I write a lot about health policy, I have been looking at how President Biden is trying to use uh, the Inflation Reduction Act to his advantage in this upcoming election. He's talking a lot this week about Medicare prescription drug prices. They're talking about marching in and taking reclaiming patents from pharmaceutical companies to lower drug prices. And I guess I have to say, I wonder if amid all this other stuff, Israel Ukraine, abortion, if any of that is really going to stick with voters. My thanks this week to our panel, Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent at The New York Times, Idris Kaloun, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist, and Eva McKend, national politics correspondent at CNN. Thanks to you all. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup. We are here today to celebrate the marriage of Jake Peralta and Amy Santiago. I've known you both for the last five years, and it has been a true pleasure to watch your distracting childish rivalry evolve into a distracting childish courtship, and now into what I'm sure will be a distracting childish marriage. I'm proud of you, and I love you both. Permission to say it back? Permission granted. Love you too, sir. Love you, Captain. This week, friends and family are remembering award-winning actor Andre Brower. He starred in the TV series Brooklyn Nine-Nine. For eight seasons, he played the upright, no-nonsense Captain Raymond Holt. His most recent film role was as New York Times editor Dean Bacay in the movie She Sad. Brower's deep sense of humanity on and off screen won him many fans. Andre Brower died of lung cancer on Monday. He was 61. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup after this short break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast, With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Let's jump into the global edition of the News Roundup. We've got a lot to cover, starting with a historic agreement at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai. We have the basis to make transformational change happen. Let us finish what we have started Hearing no objection, it is so decided. And Israel's war on Gaza enters another week in the human toll growing. The house was hit by a missile. We did not feel anything after that. My mother was killed. 
Lots to get to with our panel today in London. Alexis Aquajuram, Managing Editor of Semaphore Africa. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Here with us in studio, Felicia Schwartz is U.S. Foreign Affairs and Defense Correspondent at the Financial Times. Thanks for making time for us. Hello. And the wonderful Jack Detch, National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Always great to have you. Always a pleasure, Nyla. Big news this week from Dubai in a landmark agreement. Almost 200 countries agreed to transition away from the main cause of climate change, burning fossil fuels. I was in Dubai for much of the UN climate conference, COP28. It was quite an experience, I will say, being among the 100,000 or so people attending these climate talks in of all places, the oil state of the UAE. The location and current COP president, Sultan Al-Jabbar, who I should point out is also head of ADNOC, the state oil company, loomed large over all of these talks. Through the nights and the early hours of the morning, we worked collectively for consensus. The presidency listened, engaged, and guided. I promised I would roll up my sleeves And I promised I would be with you every step of the way. And you, my colleagues and friends, you did step up. You showed flexibility and you put common interest ahead of self-interest. This agreement is the first to include language calling on countries to shift away from fossil fuels, but notably not to eliminate using them entirely. Jack, uh, for most of the conference, it wasn't clear if we would get to an agreement. So what did it take to get to this? Well, a lot of arm wrestling, Nyla, and you you saw this up close and personal in your fly-on-the-wall view in in Dubai and would love to hear more about that. Uh, But these negotiations were set to wrap up on Tuesday. They had language in place that was pretty weak on fossil fuels, but the talk seemed to get a second wind after Western officials pushed back on the petrostates. And and that was definitely the dynamic here. It was the petrostates, the UAE, uh, the Saudis, uh, the Qataris, and the – versus sort of uh, the United States, the West, um, and and all of these states in the middle, of course, the global south, um, the Chinese, who are pushing to to grow, to work their way up the economic food chain using dirty fuels, burning fossil fuels – Ultimately, you have an agreement now to transition away from fossil fuels. That's kind of a weak agreement. It's non-binding, but it does curb methane emissions. It triples renewable energy in in seven years. We'll see how far they get. But again, the battle lines have been drawn. They're very clear. Alexis, agreeing to shift away from fossil fuels is one thing. But as Jack pointed out, what actual promises came out of this conference to make that transition happen? I mean, the big news was that transition away, but ultimately, none of this is binding. So, I mean, a promise only works if if there is actually something in practice that could happen. And ultimately, there's no accountability because none of this is enshrined in law. And also, it's worth noting that the language was vague. So there were no time limits and no promised time limits that, that the transition could take. So, I mean, ultimately, the transition could take decades in order to actually play out. So, I mean, it matters symbolically, but it won't have any genuine impact in the real world without incentives to make this transition happen. So, for example, you know, you need things like subsidies for renewable energy. I mean, in practice, all countries will need help and they weren't given assurances. I mean, that's particularly the case with climate finance because a huge source of frustration for poorer nations is that projects are more expensive than in wealthy nations because there's this perceived risk associated with those countries. We see it across 
Africa in particular. Um, and there weren't promises with regards to how this is going to be financed. So, I mean, that's the main thing. That was my main takeaway. Right. I want to get to uh, the loss and damage fund in a moment. But when you're at these talks, um, you know, it's not just all the big countries. The interesting thing to me is how um, the alliance of small island states is sort of like the rock star at these talks and everyone's following around those people. The alliance of small island states, AOSIS, is a group of countries facing the most urgent effects of climate change right now. Anne Rasmussen is their lead negotiator. And she said the deal was, quote, unambitious. We have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. That's Samoa's Anne Rasmussen. She's also the lead negotiator from the Alliance of Small Island States. Felicia, who else was unhappy with this final deal? Well, definitely this group, this alliance of small countries that or small islands that you mentioned, um, it was not great. They weren't in the room. I'm sure you have thoughts about that, but they weren't in the room at the end. Um, the EU was also pushing for, uh, you know, more on a commitment to phase out fossil fuels that, as as you all mentioned, that the final text did not get there. Uh, there were also some were disappointed that there was language um, you know, that didn't set a time frame, as Alexis said as well. And and I think Anne Rasmussen was the one who said there's a litany of loopholes in this. Um, you know, another one is um, the use of carbon capture technology uh, that is encouraged in, in some parts of the agreement. And the, uh, many um, analysts and activists are concerned that will actually help prop up the fossil fuel industry. And then, yeah, as Alexis mentioned, I think the real issue here is richer countries need to provide more support on climate finance and that didn't really get there. Right. Let's talk about that. Um, A major, this was seen as a major win early in the conference in agreement, first of all, on a loss and damage fund, which just so everyone's clear, the idea is that wealthy countries that generate the most pollution will fund adaptation and mitigation projects for some of the lowest income countries hit hardest by climate change. Uh, This is something climate activists like Climate Action Network's Harjeet Singh have spent more than 30 years advocating for. I spoke with him on the sidelines of COP28. U.S., for instance, is responsible for more than quarter of cumulative greenhouse gases so far in the atmosphere. So when we talk about temperatures changing, right, and the erratic weather that we are facing, it's all because of those past emissions which are locked into the atmospheric system and are causing these disasters. Similarly, with the European Union, another quarter cumulative emissions come from Europe. So that's why we say that it's rich countries industrial model that has caused the problem in the first place. And that's why they have more responsibility and obligation to pay. You can hear, by the way, my whole conversation with Harjeet Singh on my new Axios podcast, One Big Thing. Alexis, let's take stock here. Now that, as Harjeet Singh, we actually have a fund, the important question would be how much progress was made on actually funding the loss and damage fund? So there was limited progress. I mean, the big step was to have a fund, yes. But, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, at the last check, we had the first pledges coming in from wealthy nations, and that reached nearly $800 million. But, I mean, context is everything. So that's well short of the $100 billion a year that developing nations said that they needed to cover 
you know, uh, loss and damage, ultimately. So it's a drop in the ocean at the moment, so far short. Jack, throughout the conference, as you mentioned, there were countries lobbying for a complete phase-out of fossil fuels, but they came up against OPEC and major oil-producing countries like Saudi Arabia and, of course, the host country, the UAE. So how is this deal and conference clouded by how present the oil and gas lobby was in negotiations? I think it's impossible to understate how deeply the influence of of the oil lobby was was felt here, and I'm I'm sure that Nyla, you were seeing it in the room. These these people passing you by, uh, the figures from the AP are are just staggering. There were at least 1,300 employees of fossil fuel backers attending the conference in Dubai. The Saudi delegation included 15 employees of the state oil company that weren't registered as members of the state oil company, including their CEO. Uh, and of course, the the leader of of the whole uh, show, uh, President Sultan Al, Al Jaber, running the COP, uh, heads up the UAE's largest oil company. So it's this dynamic again that's also being set up, kind of a fight within the fight. You have oil companies saying they want to be part of the solution, but you have environmental groups coming on and saying this is like having peace talks and bringing an arms dealer to the table. Alexis, I'm curious your perspective as you think about um, the African nations represented, how you feel like um, what you're hearing from those countries about how they fared in these negotiations. Um, What I'm hearing is that there's a lot of frustration. I mean, I think you had it there in your clip. It's just this sense that um, African countries contribute something like less than 4% to global carbon emissions. And essentially, they didn't create this problem. They're being hardest hit by the impacts of extreme weather conditions. And many of these countries have vast oil and gas reserves, and they're being told, no, you cannot benefit from them. And they're being told that by these industrialized nations. So there's a lot of frustration because they're not being told how they can fund climate adaptation. Now to the war in Gaza. Israeli defense forces continued their onslaught of the blockaded enclave from the air and closing in on more areas from the south. Since the October 7th surprise attacks by Hamas on Israel, more than 18,700 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed, two-thirds of them children. That's according to the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza. Israel says around 1,200 Israelis have been killed, most on October 7th. More than half of the hostages taken by Hamas remain captive. In the aftermath of October 7th, President Biden has held Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu close, quite literally with a bear hug and a visit to the country days after the attack, and figuratively with his administration's continual defense of Israel's right to defend itself at the White House and at the United Nations. But this week, a rift. Jack, at an off-camera event for Democratic donors on Tuesday, President Biden said Israel is losing support over its, quote, indiscriminate bombing of Gaza and that Benjamin Netanyahu should change. What can you tell us about these comments? Yeah, let's let's take it one at a time here. I, I think the, the interesting thing is the public and private message from the Biden administration has been indeed that Netanyahu has to change, that there's not a lot of rope left when it comes to this Gaza ground invasion, even as they push further south. It may be weeks. It may be days. The administration wants it to stop at this level and transition to something that's much smaller scale. Apparently, uh, reportedly, uh, some of our colleagues reporting, uh, they've talked Israel out of anything preemptive against Hezbollah that, that could expand the war. But the conduct hasn't changed, right? The reporting coming out this week from, from CNN that the IDF has used 40 to 50, 40 to 45 percent of their, uh, their weapons, their air-to-ground weapons have been unguided. Uh, that's 29,000 air-to-ground munitions they've fired into the Gaza Strip. 
over the course of several weeks. And just the, remind us, unguided meaning? Unguided meaning these don't come with guidance kits. They're, they, they're not as accurate as the most modern weapon systems, and they're firing them these into heavily populated areas, I, I think we need to underscore. And that's the other problem is political. Um, Netanyahu's coalition is very far right-leaning, and Biden acknowledged it's going to be very difficult for him to move under these circumstances. Felicia, what kind of window does this open into the conversations the president's been having with Bibi, who he's had disagreements with for decades? So I think up until this week, you mentioned the bear hug. The U.S. approach, and Biden's in particular, has been to basically not say anything negative about Netanyahu or his government in public and then to have a series of tough conversations in private. I think at that same campaign event, um, the president referenced that, you know, there's this picture Netanyahu has on his desk where Biden wrote, Bibi, I love you, but I don't agree with anything you say. They have a long uh, kind of tough relationship, but grounded in respect because they've known each other for years. But now you can see, you know, Biden is starting to pay a bit of a political cost. The po- there are recent polls showing that this is, you know, pretty unpopular with Democrats, particularly younger ones. And I think he's just genuinely frustrated by, you know, the conduct of the war. Um, at this stage, like the civilian death toll, as Jack mentioned and you mentioned, is is climbing. So I think what we're seeing is some of this kind of private advice uh, being thrust into the open. And I think it also just lays bare, you know, how challenging, you know, of course, the war is creating all kinds of tension between the U.S. and Israel. But it's also really challenging because, you know, Netanyahu has essentially campaigned against a two-state solution, and 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 he's going to be going to elections soon again, and he will campaign against two states again, which will really create problems between the U.S. and Israel, I believe. I want to point out also this week the U.S. vetoed a U.N. resolution backed by the vast majority of Security Council members and many other nations demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, despite a last-minute plea from the U.N. Secretary General. I urge the Council to spare no effort to push for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire for the protection of civilians and for the urgent delivery of life-saving aid. The result of the vote is as follows. 13 votes in favor, one against, one abstention. The draft resolution has not been approved due to the veto of a permanent member of the Security Council. That permanent member being the U.S. Felicia, uh, the vote, uh, as you were just hearing there in that 15 member member council was 13 to 1. The U.K. abstained. Why did the U.S. veto this? So while the U.S. is growing more frustrated with Israel and its conduct in the war, they support Israel's goal overall to rout Hamas. And they say that a full humanitarian ceasefire – as called for in that resolution, would only allow Hamas to refit and regroup and and wouldn't do anything to address the fate of hostages. So what they are pushing for instead and and have sort of successfully done at least once is this, um, you know, temporary humanitarian pauses where more humanitarian aid can go in and hopefully more hostages can come out. I think those discussions are getting more challenging. They broke down after about a week, but that is the preferred um, U.S. approach. But of course, this is leaving the U.S. and Israel very isolated, um, especially the U.S. Um, and
trends, they're really the U.S. is facing a lot of pressure from some European countries, especially from Arab countries. You know, Jake Sullivan is in the region this weekend, and you know he's going to get an earful from them. They want to see this stop. It's tough on their streets and with their public. And there's been public disagreement with Israel within Israel as well over the post-war scenario. Israel's white right-wing government opposes Palestinian statehood. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects any role in Gaza for the internationally recognized Palestinian Authority. Here's Israel's ambassador to the UK, Zippy Hodaveli, speaking to Sky News UK on Thursday. The Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th of October, and we need to build a new one. And in order to build a new one... new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own? I think think the biggest question is, what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel realized on the 7th of October. The answer is absolutely no, and I'll tell you why. Because at the moment... No, I'll answer to you. The reason there is no peace is because the Palestinians... Without offering... Mark, Mark, Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. This week, Palestinian Prime Minister Mahmoud Shtaya spoke to the Associated Press about the two-state solution the U.S. has publicly supported since the Oslo Accords in 1993. Every American uh, uh, official who arrives here to meet with us, they again repeat and repeat the same thing, that United States is for two states. Now that United States has talked the talk, we want Washington to walk the walk. Meaning that we need specific measures to implement the two-state solution, not only believe in two states. Jack, the U.S. and Israel are clearly very far apart on this post-war situation. What happens now with U.S. officials saying one thing on a two-state solution, Israel in the war cabinet, as you hear, they're pushing back? Yeah, I mean, this is this is stuck in the mud, Nyla. I mean, you, you, you heard it from the Israelis. You heard it from the Palestinians. Israel's gone back and forth about their, their post-game plan after the invasion of Gaza is over. They've freed the hostages. And theoretically, they've routed Hamas, as Felicia was saying. Um, they've they've gone back and forth about this could be an occupation of some kind, like we saw in in the aughts, uh, or this could be some sort of moderate Palestinian opposition. The problem is both the U.S. and the Israelis have said the Palestinian Authority, as it stands, isn't palatable. Uh, it needs to be reformed in some way. It's still run by the octogenarian Mahmoud Abbas, uh, and they were driven out of the Gaza Strip in the first place 16 years ago. They are not the power brokers in that area. So you kind of have a big donut hole at, at the center of, of the policy. Um, as Felicia said, the Biden administration's mostly been supportive of Israel's muscular CT policy with some, of course, major reservations about the civilian casualties. But Israel is is on the move. They're they're taking ground inside the Gaza Strip. They're destroying ground, and they're not holding it. And there's no plan to govern these areas so far. I would I would just add as a as a veteran of covering four Israeli elections in, in the not too distant past. I think the other thing that's going to happen is Netanyahu's quite embattled politically. When the fighting ends, he will almost certainly be up for another election and. 
Israel's parliamentary politics is quite complicated, and he'll be running to the right, essentially. So I think there is a range of voices right now in, in, in the war cabinet. I think the Americans see someone like Benny Gantz. He's a former head of the Israeli military. He is some, you know, more conservative than they would like, perhaps, but someone that they could work with. But the Israeli political dialogue now that we're getting a sense of, it's only going to be way more extreme in a few months' time when this is going to move on to the next phase. So I really think this is going to be quite complicated and more intense. Alexis, I wanted to ask you, early on in this conflict, South Africa and Chad withdrew their representatives from Tel Aviv across Kenya and East Africa. There have been acts of solidarity, boycotts of Israeli-made products. Can I get a sense from you on how this conflict is playing out miles away across the African continent? Well, I mean, there are divisions in opinion, but for the most part, the most striking response was South Africa. I mean, you've, you alluded to it there, and that's the most notable development because they've gone the furthest in terms of essentially severing diplomatic ties with Israel. I mean, they recalled their diplomats last month. They said that they were extremely concerned about the continued killing of children and innocent civilians. They referred um, Israel to the International Criminal Court. And I mean, that's particularly interesting because South Africa is the most industrialised economy um, on the continent. And then also their stance is inextricably linked to its own history because they see parallels with um, the history of apartheid. But then also it's part of this move by South Africa to not align itself with those who are close to the US um, in, in a in kind of increasingly multipolar world they're cleaving more towards um, the BRICS nations. Um, Algeria has also been more supportive of Palestinians. I think for the most part in East Africa, we've now reached a situation in which um, nations like Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda are standing more in solidarity with Israel. But for the most part, nations on the continent don't really want to rock the boat because, I mean, ultimately they want to adopt a position of maybe not making enemies and often trying to uh, position themselves to be slightly closer to the U.S. and in terms of what the U.S. is thinking is. Um, so for the most part, what they've said is, look, let's just call for an end to bloodshed on both sides. One last bit of news. On Friday morning, Al Jazeera journalist Wahel Dodu in Gaza and another member of his team were injured from shrapnel in an Israeli strike. They're being treated at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis and said to be in stable condition. You might recall in October, Wahul Dadu lost several members of his family, including his wife and children, and went back to reporting on the war just hours after the funeral. The Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 63 journalists have been killed in Gaza since the war began. Let's move to the latest from Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Russia's closely watching as the Biden administration weighs funding to support Ukraine. This week, Congress approved an $880 billion defense policy bill. However, funding for a separate $105 billion national security package that would provide more aid to Ukraine and Israel remains up in the air. Senate Republicans say the foreign aid should be contingent on major security changes at the U.S.-Mexico border. Felicia, Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky visited Washington on Tuesday and met with President Biden over the question of U.S. funding to Ukraine. The Kremlin has said further aid to Ukraine would be, quote, a fiasco. Can you just underscore for us how important American funding is to the Ukraine war effort? I don't think we can overstate its importance. I think without American funding, it's been about $110 billion up until this point. The Ukrainian armed forces will... 
I mean, you know, metaphorically, literally run out of gas and ammunition. Uh, some of the Pentagon officials I've spoken to estimate they've got about four to five months of, uh, you know, weapons and such left. But, you know, they're already running out of ammo. Um, and the this winter is going to be, you know, I feel like having covered this war for a year and a half, every winter is critical. But, but truly, um, you know, they're expecting another intense winter of energy infrastructure attacks. The counteroffensive hasn't gone quite as Ukraine hoped. And, you know, this is all kind of playing into this is exactly what Putin is betting on, that that the world will sort of give up on Ukraine and, you know, he can he can wait the West out. So this is extremely consequential. Jack, according to a newly declassified report by U.S. intelligence officials, Russia has suffered more than 300,000 casualties. That's deaths and injuries fighting in Ukraine. They've also significantly decreased their stockpile of weapons and tanks, even had to pull 50-year-old tanks from storage. This seems like a huge toll on Russia's military forces. This this is a major toll, Nyla. I mean, the numbers are, are staggering. Russia's lost 87% of the troops that it massed on Ukraine's border before the war. It's lost two-thirds of its tanks. But Let's not underestimate what the Russians are still throwing into Ukraine. 300 to 400,000 Russian troops are still in the country, occupying 20% of the territory. And what Western officials have been telling me for months, and they're pretty public about this now, the Russians have stockpiled thousands of precision-guided munitions for the winter to hit Ukrainian critical infrastructure and turn the lights out. Russia's transition to a war economy that's eating up about a quarter of their GDP next year and Ukraine, as, as Felicia mentions, has a little bit of rope left. They can pull from DOD stocks. DOD spokesman yesterday saying they can even pull from, from drawdown for a little bit of time, even after that money has run out. But Putin was, was really shaking his finger in the face of the West yesterday, gave a four-hour press conference where he said, point blank, the free stuff is going to run out someday. By the way, Putin's fiercest political opponent, Alexei Navalny, has gone missing within Russia's prison system for 10 days. That's according to Navalny's aides. Navalny was recently held in a penal colony after being found guilty in August of founding and funding an extremist organization. He was given an additional 19 years to serve on top of an 11 and a half year sentence he was already serving for fraud charges and parole violations. Navalny and his supporters see the charges against him as politically motivated. Now to Latin America. In Argentina, the country's newly elected president, Javier Malay, was sworn in for a new term in office shortly after he greeted supporters at the Casa Rosada in downtown Buenos Aires. He serenaded them with a song. That joy for some supporters of the candidate who promised change was short-lived when his government announced shock austerity measures. Here's Victor, an Argentine who voted for Malay, reacting to the drastic changes. He lied and said he was going to adjust the politicians themselves, that he was going to take away their privileges, everything he said. He lied, lied. At the end of the day, guess who will be paying? The people. Felicia, can you explain how these shock austerity measures are affecting prices? What kind of problems Argentines are now facing? Well, um, Argentina's new government uh, said they're devaluing the peso by about half, um, and they're going to slash public spending and reduce energy and transport subsidies. So uh, this is going to cause real financial hardship for average people. Um, and, you know, it's all part of Mile's promise 
to take a chainsaw to the economy, as he said on the campaign trail. Jack, I wonder if we can just back up a moment and ask why these austerity measures are so necessary, why Argentina has so much debt, why they're in such dire economic straits. Well, Argentina has has no real leg left to stand on. They've been through years of, of poor harvests that's forced them to buy expensive imports. The central bank has no foreign currency reserves. I mean, effectively, no foreign currency reserves. And they're trading their currency at an official rate and a black market rate. People can actually take their money and trade it for yuan or dollars or whatever they want. That's put Argentina in a $43 billion hole to the IMF. Um, it's, it's hard to see the, the trajectory out of this. Of course, as Felicia mentioned, they're trying to depreciate prices. That's going to have a huge political cost on Malay because that's going to be unpopular. Prices for people are going to go up. They're going to see their household spending go up. Um, so this could be a, a very tight rope for this new government to walk. What other alternative is there for this government, Felicia? Well, I think this is this is kind of the the interesting thing here, which is, you know, the the economy finance minister said, you know, they, they really see this like, um, you know, too much public spending as, as kind of the, the root of all issues. And uh, their finance minister said there isn't any more money. We can't keep spending more than we take in. And, um, you know, the IMF which, as Jack said, um, you know, Argentina owes billions of dollars to, they, they are welcoming these shock measures. Moving north in the region to Guatemala, the U.S. announced visa restrictions on nearly 300 Guatemalan citizens on Monday due to what it described as, quote, anti-democratic actions of officials accusing to attempt to annul the election won by President-elect Bernardo Arevalo in January of this year. Now let's turn to the U.K., where Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has prevailed so far in pushing a bill that would see some asylum seekers sent to Rwanda. Alexis, this Rwanda scheme has been around since Boris Johnson was prime minister back in 2022. What exactly does this entail? So under this scheme, essentially it's an agreement between the two countries for the UK to deport to Rwanda asylum seekers who arrive in Britain on small boats. It's born out of concerns that there are lots and lots of undocumented migrants, thousands of undocumented migrants coming by boats across um, the English Channel between France and the UK. So under this scheme, um, their claims would be heard in Rwanda. And if successful, the claimants would also be settled in Rwanda too. Um, and you're right, it has been, it came under the Boris Johnson administration. And then even after then, uh, Liz Truss took it on and now Rishi Sunak has inherited it and he's tried to run with it. But the plan was declared unlawful by Britain's Supreme Court um, last month. And that was on the basis that Rwanda was deemed to not be a safe destination to send asylum seekers. So this bill was an attempt to address the issues that led to that judgment at the Supreme Court and try and tie up all the loose ends to show that Rwanda is in fact a safe place to go. So this bill, as you've been saying, hasn't been without controversy, even within the Conservative Party, a notable number of conservatives abstaining from the vote. Why is Sunak continuing to push this policy? Well, I mean, so there are internal reasons within the Conservative Party, which has been riven by factions for various reasons and for many years. And there's the external factor of an upcoming election. Internally, this row is tearing apart his party. I mean, there's the right wing faction that are pushing for um, harder curbs on undocumented migrants coming to the country. And then there's the centre ground. And this is reminiscent of Brexit. So he's trying to find a way to not be outflanked by that hardcore right-wing 
um, side of the party. And as well as that, you know, he wants to maintain authority within the party. So, I mean, if he'd have lost that vote, um, he would have been seen as incredibly weak because he doesn't have a popular mandate. And then looking further ahead, um, he's also got an eye on the next general election. There has to be an election probably next year because the next election has to take place by the end of January 2025. And he doesn't want to be seen as weak on immigration because there is uh, a subset of people within the UK who feel that there are undocumented migrants who are coming in and get preferential treatment in the health service, which is overstretched, and for housing, for example. Um, and then what's really pushed the issue for him within the party on top of all of this is that he had an insurgent minister, an insurgent um, uh, home affairs minister, effectively, and she was really pushing this agenda. And she ultimately wants to be leader, Suella Braverman, who he fired. So he doesn't want to be outflanked and found that he's pushed out. Let me ask you about more election news. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, almost 40 million voters will go to the polls on Wednesday to, ter- to determine whether President Felix Shishikedi uh, will win another term. While there's 22 challengers, Alexis, there are a few front runners. Can you tell us who they are and what they would mean for the country? What does this election look like? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Chisagedi is the probably the favourite. He's the incumbent, um, and he's pushing for a second term. The, his main opponents, I would say, there are maybe three. There's uh, Moise Katumbi, who's a wealthy businessman and a former governor of Katanga province. That's um, the richest province in the country. He was in that position from 2007 and to, to 2015, and he's seen as being pro-business um, and economically savvy and literate. Um, as well as that, there is Martin Fulayu. Now, he's a former ExxonMobil executive. He was a close runner-up officially to Chisakedi in 2018, although it's widely believed that he actually won and that Chisakedi only won that election officially because of backroom deals whereby the election was rigged. Now, obviously, Chisakedi denies that vehemently and always has denied it, but that is the popular view. Um, and then an outsider, another option is Dennis McQuaggy. So he was the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize winner for his work as a gynecologist on victims of sexual assault. I mean, ultimately, I think it's probably going to be between Chisakedi and Katumbi because Katumbi, that's the chap who was the former governor of Katanga province. I mean, he has around four other candidates who have thrown their weight behind him. Um, But the risk here is just that if you have a handful of other uh, opponents, they could split the vote. Um, So so that's what we're looking at. And Alexis, what confidence do we have in um, how solid these election results will be in terms of how free and fair this election will be? To be quite frank, minimal confidence. I mean, it's a very, very tricky place. I mean, we're talking about a country that has... Um, 100 million people, and it's huge. I mean, this country is the size of Western Europe, and there are large areas that are of ungoverned spaces. And in the east of the country, there's a long-standing um, conflict that has seen an uptick in the last year or so between um, rival forces. You've got the M23 group of rebels who are well, who are said to be affiliated to neighbouring Rwanda. Again, Rwanda denies being involved with M23. But in total, in eastern Congo, there is something like 
a hundred, just over a hundred separate uh, militant groups. So there's a lot of fighting. There are ungoverned spaces. Um, we expect something like 1.7 million people are going to go without voting because they are in places that are riven by conflict. So it's going to be very, very tricky logistically to pull off the vote. And then on top of that, so much of it involves backroom deals. And as I mentioned in the last election, um, that's widely uh, regarded as having been rigged. So very low confidence in it being a free and fair election, unfortunately. It's 1A's News Roundup. My guest this week, Semaphore's Alexis Aquajiram, Felicia Schwartz from the Financial Times, and Foreign Policy's Jack Dutch. I'm Nyla Boudou. You're listening to 1A. Let's turn now to Sudan, where war is causing a lack of food and threat of starvation for millions. Since fighting broke out between Sudan's army and the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, in April, the World Food Program has stressed people are struggling to get even one meal per day. Alexis, can you just explain how armed forces are involved in threatening the food supply for so many in Sudan? Well, I mean, people, I mean, people are not safe in terms of just the, the logistics of being able to go out and get food. As well as that, there have been claims of um, ethnic cleansing. Um, the U.S. has come out and said that there have been war crimes committed on both sides. So depending on your ethnicity or various group that you're from, you could be at risk. So it genuinely isn't safe. And then we've seen a real breakdown in just the supply chains that would ordinarily function when a country actually functioned normally. So, I mean, and it, it's, it's just not, it's not safe. And then as well as that, there have not been ceasefires that have been adhered to. So what we've seen since April is a number of times, a number of occasions on which there have been claims that there might be a ceasefire, that there are going to be talks, but then the ceasefires have not been observed. So it simply isn't safe for many people to actually get out um, to deliver the food in the first place and then even to go out and look for food, which is why we are seeing this impact, this humanitarian crisis. And then as well as that, you've got to bear in mind that so many people have been displaced from their homes. I mean, the conflict has displaced um, more than 6.5 million people, both inside and outside Sudan, and then some 10,000 people have been killed. Jack, Alexis is talking about the logistical challenges. I wanted to ask you what kind of funding challenges are international aid organizations facing as far as this conflict goes, especially as we think about the world's attention being on what we've talked about this hour, Israel, Hamas, Ukraine. Well, I, I think you nailed it. I mean, the, the problem has been uh, in the last several months. I mean, remember, this conflict broke out in April. We're now in December. Um, so, I mean, this has been really a simmering conflict. You've seen the rapid support forces, which descended from the Janjaweed militias, a uh, very, very violent group, consolidate more power around the capital of Khartoum. Uh, you've seen uh, the government forces, the, the SAF, basically on the back foot. Uh, nobody's really respecting human rights. Nobody's taking care of the population. And you have, you know, very young kids uh, who are fighting on on behalf of the rapid support forces patrolling the streets of Khartoum. I mean, it's just a, a very devastating situation, and the aid pledges are just huge. Uh, there are people coming out of the region. Uh, a lot of people are going into Chad, which is, is currently very destabilized, the neighboring country. So you just have this, this kind of canker sore in the middle of a region uh, that's already in incredible turmoil, 
and the need is being pressed onto states that are already economically devastated. Felicia, I'd like to ask you a question we didn't get to earlier. Vladimir Putin brought up detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich this week, saying talks are ongoing, but it's, quote, not easy. Evan was first detained in March. What does this latest from Putin tell us about when he might be released? I think it is definitely significant. Um, I think the way that Russia typically handles these cases is they go through their legal system. I will use air quotes for that because, you know, the State Department and, and the Wall Street Journal and, and many others have said that, you know, Evan will not get anything um, resembling a fair trial. His, the same day that Putin said that his um, detention was extended um, once again. So I think, that, you know, clearly this is something that's getting high level attention. The case of Paul Whelan as well. Um, the Americans have also been very public about the the offers they've put forward for him. But I also think, you know, Putin is making it pretty clear that he the price will be extremely high. A big thank you to our panelists this hour, Alexis Aquajira, managing editor of Semaphore Africa, Felicia Schwartz, U.S. foreign affairs and defense correspondent at The Financial Times, and Jack Detch, national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Yo. Let's end on this note. Like many things floating around TikTok, another trend no one asked for, North Sea Talk. Some folks on the app are heading there intentionally. Others are just confused by it all. Is anybody else on North Sea Talk with that song, yo, oh, I can't even get that. I mean, it's totally fascinating, right? And big up to anybody that can work out there. But it's given me such an irrational fear. And... Like an actual fear of being in peril in the North Sea. So those are, there's images of boats being thrown around in massive sea swells, boat crews flailing all over their ships. What? Videos of boats in the body of water between Denmark, England, Belgium, France, the Netherlands, and Norway have flooded social media. Generally, from what I've read, the North Sea is very, very busy, but filled with kind of mundane stuff. Shipping, fishing, energy production, and tourism. But until TikTok moves on, here we are in the North Sea. My Kid is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. Chris Costano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Budu from Axios. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.